Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio right here on the Republic Broadcasting Network. Let me thank you, one and all, once again for tuning in wherever in the world and however in the world and whenever in the world you might be listening to my voice right now. It is great to have you all on board. So let me first introduce myself. Of course, I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. That is C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. And if you go there, you can find previous episodes of my podcasts and articles and interviews and videos and show notes for every radio show that I conduct and lots and lots of other free media and free documentation freely available for download. So it is a resource. I hope people out there are using it as such. And as always, this is the Friday night edition of the broadcast. So we are going to be bringing you some Friday night highlights. And Friday night is indeed a good night for pondering some of the things that have gone on over this week. Once again, another very interesting week of broadcasts here on Republic Broadcasting on Corbett Report Radio. So I certainly hope you've been here with us for those broadcasts, including, of course, Monday night's very, very interesting conversation with Sibel Edmonds famed FBI whistleblower who has been famously gagged, in fact, referred to frequently as the most gagged woman in U.S. history for the absolutely incredible injustices that she has received at the hands of the government and the Department of Justice and the White House and the media and all of the organs of power, organized power in our society that have come together to try to prevent her from telling any part of her story. Well, she is going ahead with the publication of her memoirs, Classified Woman, the Sibyl Edmonds story. I certainly, certainly hope that you guys will go out and check out the uh, the website at the very least where you can learn more about the book and what it is that she's bringing to light for the first time. Once again, having read an advanced copy of this book, it could not be more highly recommended, especially for all of you out there who want to know more about the inner workings of an agency like the FBI. Of course, Sibel was just working in the translation department of the Washington field office, so she only has her direct experience of, of what happened there. But even those experiences are really quite horrifying and really do confirm, I think, everyone's worst fears about what can and what does happen in the most inner corridors of power in the most highest offices in the land. Quite a chilling tale in many respects, and it is so, so incredibly important that she is coming out with this now, and it is, it's going to be on the record and freely available to the public. Well, not free in the sense of free money, but free in the sense of free speech. So we have to support her and other people out there uh, who are working to get the word out about organizations like this. So in tonight's edition of Friday Night Highlights, I wanted to take the opportunity to bring to the attention of the listeners out there some conversations that I've conducted in the past with various FBI whistleblowers, not just Sibel Edmonds, but of course many, many, many other disgruntled FBI employees who have attempted to blow the whistle on the various underhanded and shady things that they have found uh, going un- ongoing and constantly taking place in that criminal organization. And I don't say that lightly. For anyone who doesn't know about the history of the FBI and how J. Edgar Hoover turned it into an instrument of terror, which he could wield against uh, any politician who threatened to get out of line, I suggest you do go and take a look at some of that history. But we will be taking a look specifically at some of the stories that some of the whistleblowers from the FBI have to tell about their experiences in that organization. 
Over the years, I have had the opportunity to interview several of them myself, so tonight we're going to be listening to some of that. I certainly hope that you will stay tuned for that here on Corbett Report Radio tonight. Once again, as always, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I do rely on the support of the listeners out there, so if you go to CorbettReport.com and click on the Support tab, you can find ways that you can support myself and this broadcast, including buying DVDs or becoming a subscriber to my weekly newsletter. And once again, I really do come to you because of you. So thank you uh, to out there to everyone who is a subscriber or who has purchased DVDs recently. I couldn't do it all without you. On that note, let's take a short break and we'll be right back to start prying open the skeletons in the closet of the FBI right after these messages. He stays a stranger You're tuned into Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And on tonight's edition of Friday Night Highlights, we're going to be investigating the Federal Bureau of Investigation itself. And we're going to be taking a listen to some of the interviews that I've conducted over the years with various FBI whistleblowers. And I have talked to quite a few, and uh, and they all have very interesting stories to tell. So why don't we start tonight by a ra- rather recent conversation that I had with Frederick Whitehurst, who was the head of the FBI crime lab for a good long time and was someone who was involved in some of the most important FBI investigations over the past couple of decades, including the Oklahoma City bombing investigation and even the investigation of the first World Trade Center bombing back in 1993. And unfortunately, during his time at the crime lab, Dr. Whitehurst uncovered some very, very troubling procedures and and outright fraud that were taking place there in the name of getting convictions and securing convictions instead of getting to the bottom of what was really happening. And some of this, uh, what was going on in the crime lab, has been revealed in an interesting Washington Post uh, article recently, DOJ review of flawed FBI forensics process lacked transparency, talking about this process and what really happened and uh, how it was covered up by the Justice Department. So a very interesting article. I'll put that in the show notes for today's episode so that you guys out there can go and take a look at that for yourself. I also suggest you go and listen to the full conversation with Dr. Frederick Whitehurst. We'll only be playing a short uh, piece of it, but a very interesting conversation with someone who's obviously quite knowledgeable in his field and was certainly trying to get to the bottom of the the truth, but was impeded in that quest by the very FBI that was supposedly helping him to look for that truth. So a very interesting conversation. Let's pick it up from when I'm asking him about his own personal experience in the FBI crime lab and the fraud that he encountered there. Well, as soon as I entered the lab, I saw that it was an unprofessional environment. We were trying to find tidying up the material in areas that were obviously contaminated, and he didn't know where the material came from the crime scene or the crime lab. Um, I was there five years when I found an individual who had been altering my reports, my reports, without authorization, by authorization or even knowledge. Um, evidence was was manipulated. People were testifying in court to expertise that they didn't have. Uh, it, it was... 
it, it was um, mind-boggling to see it going on, knowing it was going on, talking to my managers about it, and then saying, well, we realize this is going on, but it's not your cross to bear. And But it was. It was my cross to bear. It was every American's cross to bear. Um, you're just not going to do it. I've got a badge, and I've got an oath of office, and we've got specific requirements to report fraud, waste, abuse, and corruption, and any indication of misconduct, the appropriate authority. What happened was I tried to solve the issues. I and, and fellow uh, scientists in the lab, I wasn't the only person. We tried to solve the issues within the laboratory. Let's um, let's get to the bottom of this. Let's find out if anybody got hurt. Our managers were absolute unmitigated cowards all the way to the director's office. Absolute cowards. They would not. They would not. They they did anything at all, and they're still today doing anything at all to stop revelations that might free innocent people. And they're going out of their way to do that. And you know, sir, they know they're they're doing that. They realize um, the reputation of the FBI is more important than, than the individual freedom in this country. Um, when I saw what I saw, uh, you know, a dirty lab, unvalidated protocols, um, open racism at times, um, just just you name it, there's a whole, whole list of it. I went forward and tried to talk to people about it. And there were some colleagues who supported me all the way through to testifying for um, Senate and, and uh, congressional hearings. Um, but managers, all managers did, sir, was to try and cover it up. It's, um, it's sort of Enron in law enforcement. Let's, uh, let's do anything we can to get to that um, county line of retirement and get our, uh, even up to and including Director Louis Free, anything at all to stop this, to cover it up. Well, let's talk about one of the specific cases that you worked on. Obviously, we've just passed the 17th anniversary of the tragedy at the Alfred P. Murray Building in Oklahoma City. And one of the uh, the incidents that, that you were uh, reporting on was due to uh, some just unbelievable uh, testimony that was given at uh, uh, the trial of Terry Nichols. And uh, and I understand this revolves around a, a forensic scientist in the FBI crime lab named Stephen Burmeister or Burmeister, who actually lied on the stand about the ammonium nitrate crystals that were found or supposedly found on the OKC bombing building. Can can you tell us a little bit about that story? Actually, Stephen Burmeister was my student, and he was really he un- he understood. And in fact, really about a third of the of the issues that I brought forward came from him. He was an FBI agent, but you know he had a career that he was worried about, and he didn't want to come forward himself. And um, so he he would raise the issues with me, and he was my student, and then my partner. And then as time went on, and you know I was going to be relieved of of being an explosives examiner, um, I turned my assets over to him, and he moved into my position, and then went up uh, management. There was a specimen at the uh, at uh, the crime scene. It was Q specimen question specimen five hundred seven Q five hundred seven, which had um, crystals on it. And <clears throat> the question was, they were ammonium nitrate crystals. And the question was, how could they have gotten there? And it was a very strange situation because 
all these materials came off of and landed all over the place, and people were walking around the crime scene, which was a huge crime scene, trying to find pieces and parts of of whatever that might be clues leading to how did this happen. When the when the bomb went off very quickly after that, there was very hard rain in the area. Ammonium nitrate crystals, which were adhering to Q five oh seven. Um, it was remarkable that they survived, as the Oklahoma folks call it, gully wash and rainstorm. Ammonium nitrate dissolves right now. Um, in fact, even in the 20% humidity of the FBI laboratory, we had trouble keeping them from absorbing water and changing form when we were trying to determine the crystalline structure of them. And the the... What do you call it? the crystals themselves? If if they if they were embedded in Q five hundred seven, then um, that would have meant they might have been driven into it by force. Well, I looked at Q five hundred seven. Steve called me in the room to look at it, and the crystals they were on the surface. They weren't embedded, but that became the issue in the trial. It was my opinion at the time that he um, gave false and misleading testimony about that particular aspect. And it, it wasn't it wasn't that big a deal, except, you know, I mean, it wasn't that, that important a piece of evidence that there was ammonium nitrate crystals on there. It could have been argued another way. How did they get there? The piece itself was mishandled by a, a trainee who was on the crime scene. But how could they have gotten there? Um, well, if they were driven into, into the Q507, that would have meant they came from the blast. And I frankly didn't see that when I looked through the microscope. Um, and that's what that testimony was in the Nichols matter that uh, Steve had given, in my opinion, false uh, testimony during the trial. So what are the implications of that for the, the case that was used to convict uh, Nichols and McVeigh? You know, the implications go beyond... Um, whether that particular piece of, of evidence was important or not to how far would the government go to manipulate the trier of fact to get the jurors to believe something? How far would they go? At the crime laboratory, um, it was a regular practice for people to testify outside their area of expertise. Um, one agent altered my reports for five years, as I said, most of which were altered to support the prosecutor. When you have that kind of activity by the government, if jurors are made aware of it, then you have what you know some of us call the O.J. Simpson um, factor. Uh, there were so many people in law enforcement that lied in the O.J. Simpson trial, in his, in his um, criminal trial, that no one was going to believe anything that law enforcement said. American... The American public is, we're not, you know, they're not stupid. They're as bright and, and, and um, intelligent as any FBI agent. If they believe they're being lied to, we think that that would cause distrust of the government's position. So that's really the implication there. Does it mean oh, um, uh, Terry Nichols was guilty or Timothy Bay was guilty or innocent or whatever? No. The implications are, sir, that we are we are seeking a fair trial. And between us and what's happening in Syria right now is our justice system. 
it's not army, it's not uh, you know police force or whatever. It's because we think we can go before a judge and a jury and get a fair trial. If we lose that, then you know there's an expression out there: if justice fails, violence prevails. And we've seen that in this nation before. We we saw it in the '60s. Uh, we saw it in the '60s, a hundred years before that. Um, I saw it in Vietnam. I don't want to see it again. But if you can't be treated fairly anywhere, if if the rule of law is based upon the rule of might, then well, there's a lot more citizens than there are government, and people think that way. I mean, it's just you know, and I'm not I am not advocating that at all. That's why I spent spent this professional life trying to see that fairness is in that process. We're back here on Corbin Report Radio tonight on the Friday Night Highlights, taking a look at various FBI whistleblowers and their remarkable stories of the criminal activities that the FBI has been engaged in and unfortunately covered up and tried to kill the messenger, so to speak, by getting rid of the whistleblowers rather than getting rid of the problems. And we were, of course, talking to Sibel Edmonds earlier this week about this very uh, phenomenon, and I hope once again that you'll check out her new book, Classified Woman. But let's move along to our next interview, which came out in March of 2010 and featured Jane Turner, who was an FBI agent in the Minneapolis field office and encountered some remarkable uh, abuses of power and uh, and unfortunately just uh, terrible things happening there. But also, she had a very interesting story regarding FBI agents stealing evidence from the crime scene at Ground Zero on 9-11. And this is a remarkable story in and of itself. And once again, I hope people will go and follow the links to find out more about Jane Turner and her remarkable story and how it was backed up by official government investigations and eventually how she got forced out of the FBI for daring to bring up pesky little issues like this, just little things that, uh, oh, by the way, break criminal law and are against every tenant of all criminal investigations, people stealing mementos from ground zero on 9-11 to take back to their field offices wherever they are, including Minneapolis. So a pretty remarkable and sensational story. So it was in March of 2010 that I had the chance to talk to Jane Turner about this remarkable story. And so we'll pick it up from the middle of the conversation where she starts talking about the tampering of the evidence at Ground Zero by FBI agents. It was during that time that I found out after I was forced back to Minneapolis, the Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota main office, from Minot, North Dakota, that I discovered uh, there was misconduct going on down there, i.e. Uh, issues of theft from Ground Zero. And I also discovered that they had been, or we had agents who had signed up, people as informants who had no knowledge that they were being signed up. Here again, I went through the system, and uh, it went all the way up to Washington, D.C., came all the way back down again, 
And then, of course, under the Whistleblower Action Act, it got sent over to the Department of Justice and the IG. The IG determined uh, my allegations were correct. It was theft from ground zero. And uh, But uh, the Department of Justice has been sitting on the whistleblower claim, my whistleblower claim, and it's been sitting there ever since. So, so just to be clear, what what kind of theft are we talking about from Ground Zero? Uh, there were several items taken, um, artifacts, specifically what was found in what I found in the FBI office here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, was a Tiffany globe that had been taken from the actual crime scene there at Ground Zero. It was right. sitting on, uh, yeah. It was sitting on the secretary's desk uh, in full display in the office. It turned out that, that I discovered that several items were brought back from New York to the Minneapolis uh, division, into the division. Right, and you mentioned there was a, a government uh, investigation that that uh, vindicated that. It, specifically, who was investigating that? That was the Inspector General. And they were, that is a specific investigatory agency set up to determine if there is, uh, on these whistleblowing claims, if there is, you know, breaking of the law, misconduct, malfeasance issues. They did determine, uh, in my favor that there was theft from ground zero. In fact, not only the Minneapolis office, but there were several FBI agents who had taken things. This resulted, of course, uh, after I blew the whistle on that, it resulted in my forced removal from the FBI. After many, many years, I retired from the FBI uh, after 25 years of superior service, and I was forced out, and nothing happened to any of the people who stole things. Right. Well, just to put that into perspective, just to put that into perspective for people out there, because uh, for someone who's in law enforcement, I'm sure it's just second nature, but for people who aren't in law enforcement, what really is the significance of FBI agents actually tampering with a crime scene like that? Well, you know, when whenever articles are removed from a crime scene, it can determine the results of the end of the investigation. Take, for example... When you had the bombing in New York uh, earlier, in the 1990s, I believe, they found just a small little VIN plate off of the truck that was used, and that helped them to take it back to the actual perpetrators of that bombing. So anytime you remove anything, you are kind of destroying the credibility of the crime scene search. Exactly. And, and just to be straight on that point, what were members of the, what, the Minnesota field office doing at Ground Zero in the first place? Um, every field office in the FBI has evidence recovery teams, which are known as ERT, Evidence Recovery Team, ERT. And after uh, 9-11, there were um, uh, ERT members who were brought back to... New York from several field offices across the United States. Many and known. It's all obscure behind the eyes.
Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio here on this Friday night edition of the broadcast as we dip into the CorbettReport.com archives for more information about the seedy past of the FBI and the various whistleblowers who have attempted to bring the public attention and to actually correct the problems of various transgressions that were taking place in the Bureau. And unfortunately, they have pretty much all been silenced one way or another generally by just firing them all together. And unfortunately, that's the sad story that played itself out with uh, Sibel Edmonds and unfortunately Dr. Frederick Whitehurst and Jane Turner, the other people we've been listening to tonight, had similar experiences during their employment with the FBI. And it is important for people to understand the history of the FBI and why it is the organization that it is. It's also important to understand what whistleblowing is really all about and what types of things generally result from whistleblowing at the highest levels of national security like this. Because unfortunately, unlike some of the other areas of whistleblowing where there are, there do seem to be actual safeguards in place for the whistleblowers themselves, when it comes to this murky world of national security, Suddenly, anything that the FBI wants to claim or deem is uh, is absolutely acceptable, and the Department of Justice is all too eager to fall in line. And of course, we saw that with Sibel Edmonds' own story as the state secrets privilege, an almost unheard of and almost completely unapplied executive power was uh, was applied in Sibel Edmonds' case for one of the first times, and unfortunately since then has become quite a regular, uh, routine way of dealing with whistleblowers by basically saying that uh, even the, the contents of the case can't even be argued in court, not even behind closed doors with uh, evidence presented only to a judge. Even in that case, it would still jeopardize national security. So all of this has to be classified and covered up, and it cannot be argued in court. Well, unfortunately, this type of draconian method of dealing with these transparency issues and whistleblowers is becoming all too common, which is why it was particularly egregious when Mr. Hope and Change, the Obama Sire, got it voted in in 2008 on his promise of, well, he basically promised the moon, but he also promised more transparency in government and, in fact, made his very first speech as the president about uh, transparency in government and opening up the government. And uh, unfortunately, just like all of the other rhetoric that the uh, Hope and Change Messiah came, came on board with, that rhetoric, too, was completely and utterly false. And unfortunately, Obama has become, in many ways, even worse than the Bush administration in cracking down and prosecuting whistleblowers. So on that note, it was very disturbing to watch how a number of government lapdog NGOs lined up to give the Obama Messiah an award for his transparency. And uh, what possibly could have been going through their mind is a good question, because certainly we have not seen any transparency in this government. But nevertheless, these NGOs lined up to give him a transparency award. And here's the capper. It was delivered in secret, off the record. The press were not invited to a ceremony bestowing a transparency award on his administration. Absolutely unbelievable. Well, for the story on that, we're going to turn to the audio of a video that I created back in June of last year. It's called 
Obama's Hypocrisy, and it was the very first edition of the eye-opener report for Sibyl Edmonds BoilingFrogsPost.com. And it was the very first thing that we worked on together, and on that note, I had an interview with Sibyl Edmonds and an interview with FBI whistleblower Colleen Rowley about the uh, the move by a number of national security whistleblowers, including both of themselves and many, many others besides, like Daniel Ellsberg and Russ Tice and Ray McGovern and, and Tony Schaefer and many others, to try to get Obama's Transparency Award rescinded, because obviously the Obama administration does not deserve it. Unfortunately, the NGOs involved did not take it back, but here's the audio of that video. Welcome. This is James Corbett of The Corbett Report with the inaugural edition of The Eye Opener, a new weekly video series produced in conjunction with BoilingFrogsPost.com. And now for the real news. A group of American national security whistleblowers, civil liberty campaigners, anti-war groups, national whistleblower organizations, and others are set to release a petition tomorrow asking a group of NGOs to take back the Transparency Award they bestowed on President Obama last March for his supposed attempt to fight against government secrecy. The petition, drafted by noted FBI whistleblowers Sibel Edmonds and Colleen Rowley, rebukes both the Obama administration for its track record on secrecy and the NGOs that presented him with a transparency award. Originally scheduled to be bestowed on the president in a publicly scheduled ceremony at the White House during Sunshine Week, that ceremony was cancelled at the last moment, and the award, supposedly a token of praise for Obama's stated commitment to government openness, was itself bestowed on the president in a secret, off-the-record meeting to which the press was not invited. As one of the groups that bestowed the award on Obama wrote in their press release regarding the event, We were disappointed that no press photographer and no pool reporter were at the meeting. We were really surprised to learn it was not on the president's daily calendar, especially as it was on his calendar on the originally scheduled date. Why they decided to close the meeting to the press is not something we understand. Among the signatories to the petition are some of the best-known national security whistleblowers in the United States, including FBI whistleblowers Edmonds and Rowley, Pentagon Papers leaker Daniel Ellsberg, NSA whistleblower Russ Tice, retired CIA analyst Ray McGovern, former U.S. diplomat Colonel Ann Wright, Able Danger insider Tony Schaefer, and current and former members of the State Department, U.S. Army, Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security, the Drug Enforcement Administration, the Department of Energy, U.S. Customs, and a coterie of organizations, such as the National Whistleblower Center, the September 11th Advocates, the Bring Our Troops Home Coalition, and many others. Last week, I talked to the co-drafter of the petition, ex-FBI language specialist Sibel Edmonds, about the petition and its goal, and why this group considers it important to get the NGOs involved to take back their transparency award from Obama. So again, speaking of transparency, we know this president's record. We have been very alarmed. Next week, we are going to see um, a new trial uh, of uh, another whistleblower, Thomas Drake, NSA whistleblower, is going to begin. And uh, during this period, five organizations that advertise themselves as anti-secrecy, pro-transparency, went to the White House and presented this president 
with an anti-secrecy uh, award, the Transparency Award. Now, this did not take place two years ago during the beginning of this presidency. That way, if that were to be the case, we could have said, okay, well, you know, they are trying to offer some carrots to the president and try to encourage him to be more open and not to follow the suit that the pre previous administration had. But this award was given, presented to this president two months ago. This is after this president had invoked four or five times of state secrets privilege to shut down legitimate cases. Uh, this is after this president had gone after whistleblowers uh, trying to persecute and prosecute and jail these whistleblowers. We have Bradley Manning right now sitting in jail with no right to have bail. So after, and this is after this president has increased secrecy, uh, whether it's FOIA or it's the White House own secrecy, including their own visitors log. So after all these actions and after all these records have been out there for everyone to see, you see five organizations walking to the White House and presenting this president with transparency award. And not only that, doing that in secrecy. This meeting, the ceremony was secret. What happened, what took place during the ceremony is still secret. We keep getting changing stories from these organizations. In fact, the president uh, doesn't want this to be even shown in the in the in any kind of a log or records of the White House meetings and ceremonies. I mean, this is, this is outrageous. The idea that the Obama presidency was going to begin a new era in government openness came from the president himself, who on his first day in office used the occasion of his first press conference to promise Americans greater transparency and used his first executive order to direct government agencies to err on the side of openness in the face of freedom of information requests. For a long time now, there's been too much secrecy in this city. The old rules said that if there was a defensible argument for not disclosing something to the American people, then it should not be disclosed. That era is now over. Starting today, every agency and department should know that this administration stands on the side not of those who seek to withhold information, but those who seek to make it known. To be sure, issues like personal privacy and national security must be treated with the care they demand. But the mere fact that you have the legal power to keep something secret does not mean you should always use it. The Freedom of Information Act is perhaps the most powerful instrument we have for making our government honest and transparent. This appears to be the sentiment that the NGOs who bestowed Obama with his Transparency Award were rewarding and encouraging. The five NGOs involved in the secret White House meeting to award Obama for his openness were the Project on Government Oversight, OMB Watch, OpenTheGovernment.org, the National Security Archive, and Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. Each of the organizations was invited to comment on this story. In an email to the Corbett Report, Gary Bass of OMB Watch stated that although all sides agree that more needs to be done, Obama has made breathtaking changes within two and a half years in opening up the government to accountability, citing some specific examples. EPA is creating the Greenhouse Gas Registry. FDA has established new ways of inviting public participation. Medicare has more disclosure about its program. CPSC has created an online complaints database. 
many agencies now have blogs, use social media, and are adapting to mobile apps. Joe Newman of the Project on Government Oversight wrote, I think we've made it clear that the president has shortcomings when it comes to transparency, but I'd also challenge any impartial observer to refute the fact that he has made significant strides in opening up the government, especially when compared to his predecessor. As the petition itself points out, Obama's presidency has amassed the worst record in U.S. history for persecuting, prosecuting, and jailing government whistleblowers and truth-tellers. Indeed, this is not an immeasurable claim. Given that the Obama DOJ is currently prosecuting five alleged national security whistleblowers, his administration is actually engaged in more such prosecutions than have occurred in all previous administrations combined. The whistleblowers being prosecuted include Bradley Manning, who was locked in a Marine Corps detention cell measuring 6 by 12 feet for nearly a year without any clothing except his underwear, without bedsheets or pillow, his eyeglasses, or even writing implements, all for having been accused of having leaked U.S. Army documents to WikiLeaks. And Thomas Drake, an NSA whistleblower who exposed massive governmental overreach in a data collection and analysis project that violated the Constitution and numerous other laws and statutes. The Obama presidency has also seen a marked rise in the invocation of the state secrets privilege, a draconian use of executive authority to stop claimants against the government from even arguing their case in court. So far, the Obama DOJ has invoked state secrets privilege to quash lawsuits against companies that aided the CIA in their illegal torture and kidnapping program, and stop legal redress against the government's illegal warrantless wiretapping program. One of the most brazen uses of state secrets privilege came last year, after Obama had claimed the right to assassinate American citizens without a trial, or even bringing charges against them. The father of Anwar al-Awlaki, the American citizen and alleged terrorist whom the Obama administration had targeted for assassination, filed a lawsuit to stop Obama from killing his son. Amazingly, the Obama DOJ invoked the state secret's privilege to stop the case from being heard before the court. At the time, an astounded Glenn Greenwald wrote, Not only does the president have the right to sentence Americans to death with no due process or charges of any kind, but his decisions as to who will be killed and why he wants them dead are state secrets, and thus no court may adjudicate their legality. The petition goes on to list the other grievances that the transparency community has with the Obama administration, including its use of grand juries to target journalists and their sources, its maintenance of sites like Bagram for holding illegally and secretly kidnapped detainees, and Obama's refusal to provide full access to White House visitors' logs, a point that he actually joked about as the NGO representatives were entering to give him his award for transparency. Still, the NGOs behind the award argue that they hoped their token would help push the Obama administration in the right direction. Wrote Gary Bass, I believe in both the carrot and the stick. I do not find it inconsistent to provide reward for good behavior and criticism for bad behavior. Hence, I have no problem with praising the president for his commitment to openness and transparency while simultaneously telling him what he needs to do better to live up to his commitment. Joining me in a phone conversation to address these arguments late last week was FBI whistleblower and petition co-author Colleen Rowley. Well, I think the award started uh, not because Obama should be given an award for transparency. In fact, he should be awarded for increasing secrecy, just the opposite. But the motivation uh, seems to have been 
the chance, uh, getting a chance to, to lobby Obama in an aspirational way for him to become more transparent. It's the old uh, use of the carrot instead of, you know, criticism the stick. And I think these five open government organizations were doing something very similar to what the Nobel Peace Prize organizers were doing. They were trying to give him a nudge in an aspirational way to become more transparent. Uh, if this if the five open government organizations had done this and there had been no Nobel Peace Prize, uh, you know, a, a while back, and, and we didn't have that track record of seeing Obama not, of course, be susceptible at all to that nudge in the carrot, then I think, you know, if they'd done this before, maybe you could say, well, you know, they tried. They're, they're trying to get him to do, you know, his listen to his better angels. But in, the, in light of the experience of the Nobel Peace Prize, I think we're in five wars, uh, you know, and he's actually increased, um, you know, the, the use of the military all over the world. I think it was really dumb. And, of course, we have ten, over ten different reasons showing here how secrecy has increased. And he should not have been uh, basically emboldened by this award to probably even do worse in increasing secrecy. When asked why such a prominent list of noted national security whistleblowers, professionals, and government officials would be lining up to protest the awarding of Obama for his commitment to transparency, National Security Archive Director Tom Blanton responded, I believe their opposition is misplaced, and they need more precision-guided advocacy. Know Know thy enemy. Obama is not their enemy. The petition will be released tomorrow with a dedicated website in a campaign to bring more attention to the dismal state of governmental transparency under Obama's leadership. Stay tuned to BoilingFrogsPost.com for more details. This video is part of a new weekly video news series. Future editions of this series will be available to subscribers of BoilingFrogsPost.com. For more news and commentary from James Corbett, please visit CorbettReport.com. Welcome back to the final moments of tonight's broadcast and the final moments of Corporate Report Radio for this week. Once again, a very interesting week, so if you did miss any of the uh, the episodes of this broadcast over the past week, especially the Sibel Edmonds interview on Monday night, I highly suggest you go check it out in the RBN archives at republicbroadcasting.org. Absolutely, it's some incredible uh, broadcasts and transmissions this week, so once again... I certainly hope you are subscribed to the RBN archives so that you can always uh, go back and browse through not only the archives of the Corbett Report Radio, but of course many of the other broadcasts here on RBN. But on that note, tonight we've been looking at FBI whistleblowers and some of the travails that they have had to go through in order to bring their stories to the public's attention, and unfortunately many of them being fired for having done so. So once again, if we do not support the people who are bringing this information to light, well, ultimately, they will stop bringing the information to light. On that note, we are wrapping up another week of transmissions here, and I would like to once again remind listeners what I mentioned last night on the broadcast, that I'm going to be going on vacation as of not next week, but the week after. 
and I'll be gone for three weeks. And during that time, there will be guest hosts uh, on this broadcast. So Corbett Report Radio will continue as always. And so once again, I hope you'll be continuing to tune in. And I think that'll be very interesting. I have quite a range of guest hosts lined up with some different styles and topics. So it should be interesting every single night. And on that note, of course, we are going to uh, to be stopping the podcast and the, the videos momentarily while I'm on vacation. So anyone who's uh, checking into CorbettReport.com will see that as of the middle of the month, there will be a lot less updates going on. And in fact, no updates at all for a few weeks. And I hope you'll bear with me during that time period. And when I come back, it's going to be the fifth anniversary of the Corbett Report. So that should be a very interesting time, and I'll have a surprise or two up my sleeve for that. So look for me to return at the beginning of June and some uh, some interesting things to develop from there. But until then, I certainly hope that you will uh, continue to use the CorbettReport.com archives and the five years' worth of material that are there to uh, to help to educate yourself and to inform others about what's really going on. And on that note, if you do want to support myself and my work, the best way to do so is to go to CorbettReport.com, click on the Support tab, and there you can find out how to subscribe to the weekly newsletter and also to buy DVDs. And on that note, if you do want to purchase one of my DVDs, please do so in the next few days, as I will only be able to fulfill orders that come in before next Friday. So that's uh, Friday the 12th. And anything that any orders that come in after that point will have to wait until I'm back from vacation, because I just fulfill the orders one by one myself. And uh, this week's newsletter, of course, contains, as every week, the editorial for the International Forecaster, this week talking about Paul Ehrlich's recent overpopulation pronouncements and uh, and some of the science behind that, and then some of the economic effects of the real demographic winter, which is about to take place, the underpopulation crisis that we talked about on the Corbett Report podcast in a previous episode. And also it will include a subscriber-only video and some recommended reading and viewing, etc. Discounts on the DVDs. So I hope you will check out the newsletter. Once again, thank you to all the subscribers who do make this possible. On that note, we're fresh out of time. So until next week with another slate full of uh, guests and interesting topics, thank you for listening and take care.